We all have dreams. Some people seem to live theirs while others seem to struggle. This is, however, merely a perception. What if you could get the answers you needed to execute on your dreams? Welcome to the Platinum Mask Podcast, a show designed to ask various young professionals just how they deal with their specific ups and downs. How does one young upstart navigate competing with name brand companies? Where do we get the best tools? How do we grow from our stress and anxiety? Most importantly, how do we properly utilize our cash flow? The Platinum Mask Podcast with your host, Grayson Mask. We wanted answers, so we're going out to get them and sharing them with you. Let's get right into today's episode. Hello, everyone. Checking out the The Planet Mask podcast. I am Grayson Mask. I have with me Ashley Sharp, who's the executive director of Dwell with Dignity. And this is an organization I kind of found out through uh, a few different kind of local platforms in the DFW area, but also kind of uh, saw Ashley through uh, a few different people that I know and had on the podcast, like uh, Seth and Bora, who were kind of on you know some of the earlier episodes in the podcast. But yeah, Dwell with Dignity was kind of an organization that I was very interested on in asking about, uh, especially in the topics of homelessness. Um, you know, it's kind of some conversations and interviews I've had on the platform before, but it seems kind of ever since COVID and, you know, a lot of other different factors that it's becoming a, you know, a bigger requirement and uh, a never growing issue. So just wanted to, you know, thank you again, Ashley, for taking out the time today and just the interest on, you know, helping me talk about this episode. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be on. Well, I guess my first question was um, really wanted to kind of ask about, you know, your upbringing on kind of what led to um, this type of organization. I remember kind of seeing, um, you know, related to uh, some articles about the organization that it, it seemed like you, your upbringing was, you know, overseas. It was. So my father is half Haitian and half Swiss. Uh, so I have triple citizenship. I'm a Swiss citizen, a Haitian citizen, and also a citizen of the United States. And we had an opportunity when I was first born to move back. I was born in Orlando, so moved back overseas to Germany. And my father loved it because that was an opportunity for us to be in Switzerland. Uh, often we could drive over uh, and be near his family. And that's something that he was really excited about. Uh, so I was there in Germany till about age seven. So uh, a very different upbringing. And you said like drive over to Switzerland. So like being in like the middle of Germany, like, uh, you know, what's the, I remember kind of like going to Germany with family, you know, years ago and taking the train. So growing up, like, uh, you know, were you traveling to a lot of different European countries a lot? Oh, absolutely. Uh, my parents uh, both have such a global perspective. Obviously, my father grew up in Haiti and Switzerland. Uh, and then my mother actually grew up in Venezuela. Uh, she's American, but she had the opportunity to live over there with her parents growing up. And so there's this this really great understanding of different cultures in my family and something that I've always embraced. Uh, and it was just great being able to grow up in such an international setting. Like a lot of us don't ever have the opportunity to be in a room where we're not the majority. Uh, and so it was really interesting, right? Like I don't speak the language, you know, all the things that we have to learn, just the way of life is so different. Um, and so we, it was wonderful for me because I think I grew up with a very broad and open perspective. And that's something that I've really tried to keep with me my entire life. Mm. 
When you kind of mention like that, I guess that broad perspective of kind of growing uh, up against so many countries and like so many cultures and like, uh, you know, that close proximity, I was kind of wondering on like the topic of homelessness, you know, was it like, were you noticing it handled much differently, like from country to country? Or was there any countries, um, you know, in the EU that you're uh, that you're very blown away by as far as how they're able to handle um, like their homeless population? So Germany actually has the lowest percentage of homeless individuals and the lowest percentage of lifelong homelessness, right? Because some people experience homelessness as a stent. Um, and so it's it's something that they go into and then they leave. Uh, but there are some places like the United States where that's kind of like a it's like a lifelong label, right, of being homeless is something that you don't get to actually ever grow out of or transition out of. Uh, and I think a lot of it just has to do with access to amenities that we simply just don't have in the United States. And some of the things that come to mind immediately are healthcare right? And education. How many of us have $100,000 in student loans? How many of us get sick and go to the doctor and then suddenly we can't pay our bills, right? It's it's a slope. Homelessness doesn't just happen overnight. It's something that can happen to any of us. And, you know, we're all one crisis away from experiencing a catastrophe. And so I think that in the EU, they had much better protections for people because no one there is going to go broke getting healthcare. No one there is going to go broke pursuing education. Uh, and there's no, you know, sudden eviction notices and, uh, you know, just some of the rent increases that we see here uh, that are so sudden and drastic. And so I think that we have a lot to learn as a country about some of these systemic policies that we've put into place that actually are really harmful to our most vulnerable populations. And I think like on kind of some of those uh, systemic issues that you kind of bring up up about um, kind of comparing, you know, with Germany and the United States, it, it seems like a lot of people sometimes when they hear something like that, you know, they'll kind of say that, uh, or when they kind of talk about the beneficial pol- policies of European countries, they'll kind of mention that United States is a totally different country and that there's, uh, you know, totally different factors related to that. Do you, um, you know, believe that or do you think that that's not true at all as far as like being able to implement some of the things that you talk about as far as affordable health care or affordable college tuition? I think it's all about priority. Uh I think there's a lot of uh, things in place. You know, I was just thinking about the military the other day, uh, and we have obviously a great militaristic force here. But part of the reason that people go into the military is because of the healthcare and access to education. And I was just thinking, wow, if we didn't so overtly fund our military forces, would we be able to take that money and put it into this? So instead of putting that as a carrot and dangling it in front of them and say, hey, if you come and join us, we'll send you to college for free. Like, what if we diverted those funds differently? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think there's a lot of factors at play. And again, I think it's about priorities uh, and and who we're, we're really trying to serve because there's so many little things like if you make an extra dollar a month, then suddenly you lose your health benefits or your SNAP benefits from the government. And so it's like, we're punishing people for doing better. And that should never be the case. 
So I think I've like, I, I remember kind of hearing that before. So like on the idea of benefits like that. So as soon as someone makes like an additional dollar, once they hit a mark that they just lose the benefits like 100% or does yes, it? 100%. Hmm. Yeah, they're out. It's um, almost like the, the subsidies too, or the childcare welfare checks and things like that. Uh, it's been really interesting. Like if you make just a hundred dollars too much, then suddenly you don't get it. And you're like, I'm struggling too, right? Like everyone has faced this inflation that's happened lately. Uh, it has been difficult. I mean, just going to the grocery store, suddenly it's tripled, right? And going to the gas station. So everything is just obscene. And then the people who really need help, like when was the last time that we adjusted these numbers? I mean, that's the thing I think about too, is like every single year we need to be looking at the cost of living and making sure that the benefits that we're providing are lined up with that. And I don't think that we're doing a good job of that as a country. Mm -hmm. And like on the, when you kind of like mention like on your upbringing um, and kind of with your dual citizenship uh, and kind of the move, um, you know, into Germany. So what triggered like the move to, you know, Allen, Texas when Oof. it came to, uh, you know, why uh, was it like, was that the first spot in the United States when you guys um, immigrated? Yeah. Um, so I was born in Orlando, um, so I don't remember anything and then grew up in Germany. Uh, and so then my dad got a job offer in Plano, Texas. And I remember my mother crying because she was like, oh, my God, we're moving to Texas. Like we thought of like cactuses and cowboys and deserts, right? Like coming from Germany, <laughs> that was something we were just like very terrified about. Um, and it was just like white suburban nothingness instead. Uh, so it's changed a lot. Uh, in the last few years, I think for the better. Uh, but it was just incredible. I had actually never experienced racism before moving to Allen. Uh, it was something that just wasn't present growing up in such a diverse country. And I remember when we moved here, uh, my dad wasn't allowed to go with his friends to a country club uh, because African-American individuals still weren't allowed there. And I did not understand at all how it could be like how my dad could be considered other. And that's like really bizarre, I guess, in the situation of, uh, I guess, that comparison with America and other countries as far as like the idea of race. Like, uh, like really one of my questions, like in your upbringing in like Germany with the education system, was that ever something, I, I think I've like spoken to a couple people. Um, I think I get like a range of answers as far as um, like the comparison of the the history classes in Germany when it comes to like talking about uh, their past with the Holocaust versus, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes various people in the United States with the classes on, you know, slavery or anything. What was it, I guess, in Germany? What was like, um, like classes like? Uh, I mean, so I was still pretty young, so they didn't get too deep in it. But I actually remember going on field trips over to something called Eagle's Nest, which was one of like Hitler's bases or like areas where and it would turn into a hotel. Um, but people there are so open about talking about what happened, right? Like they want to learn from their past. And I think Germany has done an amazing job as a country and they have changed so much. And I think by acknowledging their past, right? And being very upfront, like this is what we did and this is how we as people are going to make a change i uh, i just remember um you know recently especially in the the various um refugee crises that we faced germany took in the most 
right? Like they opened their doors, like people were greeting them at bus stations and train stations and mothers were leaving their strollers for other mothers who were getting off of their trains so that way they had a way to carry their children. Like that is a culture a cultural phenomenon, right? Like that's something that isn't just a single person. That's something that is embedded in the people. Uh, And so I think that there's been a huge change and I think that you do need to keep talking about it. I think that we're seeing a lot right now with like the Confederate statues being torn down, right? Like what are we commemorating? Like, can you imagine if they had a statue of Hitler up, right? Like that would be just Everyone in the world would be against that. But yet we do that here in the States. We have roads named Lee, right? I mean, it's just so common. And like on that idea of, uh, you know, when you kind of mentioned like some of the like stories of finally growing up in Texas and some of the some of the things that your parents experienced on kind of like the first brush of understanding racism Was that like, um, you know, did that change the way I guess your parents were parenting you or um, I guess being in in different scenarios of possibly being approached with something like racism? Yeah, um, I have always been blessed with parents who are very open. Uh, So from a young age, it was always about having conversations. So they never hid anything from us. You know, if we watched an R-rated movie, we would sit together afterwards to talk about it and say, you know, what was realistic? What was fake about that? Uh, And so I really loved that really open communication because, again, I think as a country, that's something that we don't do very well. Uh, And that's something that I really want to make sure that my family has is that any topic is not taboo, that we feel comfortable talking to each other about anything. Uh, But, you know, my mother from, yeah, very young age was talking to us about racism because I, you know, I guess I was maybe like nine or 10 and uh, I had heard the N word and I didn't know what that was. And someone had used it to describe my father. And so she had to explain to me that some people use words to hurt other people. Uh, And it's just been really interesting. Like as I go on my own journey too, because like my dad is from Haiti, he doesn't identify as African-American, right? That's a, he, he doesn't have the same experience that a lot of people in our country have, but he's had his own experience. Uh, and so it's been really interesting for me as I grow to try to find like, what's my place in this culture? Because I present as a Caucasian female uh, and I want to make sure that I, I am connected to all the cultures that I'm part of, um, whether I look like I belong to them or not. And that's like, um, uh, you know, that's really cool of your parents to, I guess, have that outlook on being able to explain a situation like that. Um, I, I was very curious on like, what was like some of the R-rated movies you were talking about? Um, oh my gosh, I my parents used to watch terrible stuff with me. Oh my gosh, like that show Nip Tuck about all the plastic surgeons who are like, oh my gosh, just crazy stuff. Or like even Jurassic Park as a kid, I remember watching it and they're like, that's fake, Ashley. That's not real. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, but yeah, so like there was never, like never a movie that I said, can I watch this? And they'd say, no, of course you can't watch that. Like I watched Terminator and they'd be like, okay, do you understand why this is a fictional story? And I'm like, yes, I understand that Arnold Schwarzenegger isn't real and coming uh, but I think it's really cool too because I've never I've never had any issues with things like even drinking like that's something that you know I remember being in Germany and three year olds are sipping on their parents beer right like it's not a thing and then in the United States like alcohol is so taboo uh, and so I was just always so confused because my parents were like it's just a drink right like 
this is something that's just part of life. But, you know, here it's, it's something that is, is hidden away from us as a young generation. And so then of course we want to indulge in it, right? Like we want to go wild because it's something that we're not allowed to have, but there it's like, yeah, so we're at Oktoberfest. Of course we're going to have a beer. When it comes to like that idea of drinking, is that something, do you think like the, I guess like the American culture is just too different on that as far as like, cause I always hear that on like, um, you know, possibly exposing your kid to like the idea of moderation or being able to sip on mm-hmm. wine possibly um, helps out in the future, like from like the idea of getting away from binge drinking. But sometimes yeah. I'm like, man, is there something in our history that just makes us a little more prone to binge drinking? Um, again, I think it's all about uh, access. And I think it's all about um, kind of the story that we're telling. Uh, another thing that it's, it's really different is nudity, right? Like when you go to beaches in Europe or in Germany, women are in just bikini bottoms and not tops. Uh, and like sex and nudity is just not a big thing over there. And then you move to the United States and like that is so taboo. It's something that is just, you know, frowned upon. And it was like, the things there that they don't show are are violence and murder and the things that you could see on Law and Order SVU at like two in the afternoon here. Like, it's so interesting, like alcohol and sex, which have been around since the beginning of time, like bad, but killing each other in video games, good. And I say that as someone who plays video games every single day. So mm. what kind of uh, video games are you into? Oh my goodness. Uh, everything from PlayStation to Switch. Right now, my uh, my five-year-old's on a big Mario kick. It's pretty and bad. Like, mm-hmm. and, and like on the, um, you know, your move to Allen, Texas and, you know, being in the area and uh, kind of with that situation, I remember you're kind of mentioning like with, uh, you know, with the move that you guys originally had these stereotypes in mind or you guys were expecting <laughs> kind of the... Uh, entire cowboy situation and it wasn't like that were there any other major things that um uh things that you didn't expect coming into the area well i will say that uh, my neighbors did ride horses to school so there was a little bit of accuracy in the stereotype uh so that was kind of funny um yeah i just really wasn't sure what to think when i was moving here um I will say that it was definitely not a diverse climate that I moved into, you know, especially at elementary school and middle school. Like, I don't remember any African-American or Hispanic students, no one Indian, um, Asian, right? Like, that's just something that I don't remember. And again, it's getting more diverse now, but it just wasn't, it wasn't around back then. And I just remember, you know, all of my friends were diverse in Germany. And I just was so confused why everyone looked the same here. (laughs) And like being in that, um, you know, finally in the DFW area and being able to, um, you know, really kind of, uh, kind of make it your own and be able to, um, go to college and, um, you know, work on your degree and build out this. So was the idea, I, I remember kind of seeing what your involvement with things like the Nasher, uh, yeah. and other things was like philanthropy always on your mind or something that you wanted to go straight into or, you know, how did that work out? So I actually trained with the Radio City Rockettes. I was going to be a 
professional dancer. My uh, entire career was about dance. So my undergraduate degree is in dance. And then of course my dad's an immigrant, which means that I got a business degree at the same time, because like, that's a whole thing, right? Like we could talk about that for hours. Like you have to have a practical degree. And so I was like, okay, fine. So I had the the theater degree and the business degree at the same time. Uh, I actually uh, choreographed and danced and did musical theater up until the pandemic. Uh, And so that's still been such a huge part of my life. And so the arts uh, was just like a natural place for me to go because I did so much of that uh, on stage and it really translated well because I don't think enough people who actually have experience on the front line go into the arts, right? Uh, because it makes such a difference because you actually understand the perspective of the people that you're working for. Uh, especially when I was at the symphony, that was so fascinating, right? Because the the performers are, are the draw, right? Like that's the reason people are coming, but then they have their own contracts and their own labor unions and rules and laws. Um, and it's so different. Uh, but I was just absolutely blessed because I feel like the Dallas art scene was like, that was the beginning of the arts district, right? And it was just exploding. And so uh, spending, you know, eight years over there at the beginning of my career was just absolutely incredible. So like what, how does it break down in like dance choreography or in a position like that? I've had like, um, um, really people, uh, professional dancers and ballet on the, on the show before. But so are you, is it similar to like someone orchestrating like the, uh, a choir or orchestra or, you know, how do you kind of break it down? Yeah, so it's been great. You know, obviously, I started as a dancer. I was the captain of the drill team in Allen, Texas, right? So, like, that's like a big, like, Southern thing. Um, and then uh, becoming a choreographer is great because you just get to to visualize the movement on stage. And like to me, it's about creating pictures. Uh, and so it's not necessarily about like creating the hardest dance moves, right? Like you're not trying to like show up and be like, oh, this is like the coolest thing I've ever seen a human body do. But like, you want to tell a story and create like tableaus and moments. And so that was always my my favorite thing is that, you know, you can use movement as a way to, to further the storyline of something that you're seeing. Uh, and that was really exciting just because I had kind of free reign to create my own vision. Uh, I've always been really creative and I like to be in charge. And so it was kind of a perfect marriage for me. Um, and it's funny because my five-year-old, he does theater now too, and he wants to be a dancer. So he's got the genial. <laughs> and like building out that, when, when you kind of talk about like the quality of building out those movements to further the storyline and create this big picture. So is that, was like the tar- target demographic for these shows is it for like casual viewers that maybe are going to their first show or is it normally for, you know, maybe experienced viewers who are, I guess, more versed on kind of dance choreography? Yeah, it, sometimes it depends. Like, so when I was with Dallas Summer Musicals, like, obviously, like, that was for people who are like hardcore theater lovers, right? And then working in community theater, sometimes it's just like someone's family and friends who have never seen a show before, right? Or, or this is like, this is very new for them. Uh, so some of the shows that we did, you know, people were like, oh my gosh, like, what are y'all doing? Like, this is so avant-garde. And then other times we're doing like Oklahoma, which is like a musical theater staple. And everyone's like, yeah, we know this. Uh, so it was interesting because sometimes it's like, okay, we just want you to be very classic and traditional. And then sometimes it was like, ah, no, go for it. Be as weird as you want. Uh, so it definitely depended on like if it was a like, regional theater or if it was uh, something a little bit bigger and bolder. And you said like you were doing this until recently or? 
I was. Um, so even when I had my son, I would work all day and then I would pick him up from daycare, put him in the car and then go over to rehearsal until 11 o'clock at night and just put him in a, in a bouncer or a crib. And it just got to be just too much. It was exhausting. So I, I had to step away from that. What were like the, uh, the rehearsals and like, um, you know, the industry, like during like the pandemic when it came to trying to put on these shows? Oh, it was horrible. I mean, just everyone was struggling. And, uh, even this weekend, a friend of mine was in a show and the entire show had to close a week early because of COVID. So they're really still struggling, right? Because of the the virus and what needs to be done. And, you know, people try to be creative and they tried to do, you know, cabarets where there were fewer people or there were more social distance. But unfortunately, like theater is about the audience, right? Like the performers exist for the audience to interact with. And so it's been a really difficult industry. So I think that in the future, we're going to see a, a kind of I don't know, maybe a resurgence in these smaller chamber shows uh, where people know that they can get by with smaller casts. Because if you're working with a cast of 40, you know that there's a higher chance of having to close. But if you're working with a class, you know, maybe six or eight in the cast, it's going to be much easier for you to be flexible. And especially if you need to fill a position, you can do that with 40. You can't get away with that. But I can definitely imagine like, um, I I mean, definitely there's a range of... uh um, cast like six versus like the 30, I can imagine like six is, um, you know, possibly more difficult, I I guess, to, I guess, make a large image with fewer people. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, and so, also I think that's kind of a reason I stepped away too, is like, we're getting to this thing where we call it stand and sing, right. Uh, especially during COVID, like it was less about like dancing more, but like just stand and deliver your thing. And they call it like concert version, right. Like to do the concert version of it, stand and sing. Uh, and instead of being able to dance. Uh, and so as, as a dancer, I'm like, Oh, that's my, that's my cue. Time to go. And like on, on kind of doing this while you're, you know, dancing and choreographing and, I'm still working with uh, these different philanthropy projects. Uh, So where did like the, I guess, specifically outside of philanthropy, like on the affinity towards homelessness uh, pop up? Did that like come from your early childhood or, um, you know, was there something in your life that led you to something like that? And definitely in my adult life. Um, so working for the arts was great, but it was also very eye-opening. Um, I started getting involved in the city and working with various groups like the Maristar Council at that time and became aware of the homelessness issue, right? I didn't even think about Dallas as a place that had a high level of poverty. But the arts is all about self-actualization. And that's great but only if you're able to provide those basic needs at first. And so it just was very conflicting to be working with individuals who are spending $5 million on a piece of art when people don't have $5 for gas. Uh, So I got to this place where I didn't feel like I was making a big enough difference. And I wanted to go and apply myself to making actual lives change. Uh, And then of course, um, I started working for a transitional shelter at the time that I was going through my divorce. Um, and it was a, an interesting experience to find myself in a situation that was so similar to these women's stories, right? Because no one thinks that you can have a master's degree and have a job making, you know, $60,000 a year and be homeless. Uh, but you can't, right? Like it's, it's very easy. Like I was saying, we're all just 
one crisis away. And that was my crisis. In like the idea of the transitional shelter. So going into that, I guess like what's the typical process for going into that? And like, is there, do they have to have like a mandatory like turnover, like on how long you're able to stay in a a temporary shelter or how does that go? Yeah. So there's a lot of rules and regulations. It's basically like joining the army. Uh, So it kind of depends on each group, but the one that we were at was about a nine month to one year program. So you live on campus, you have to go to a certain number of classes, you have career coaching, financial training, job readiness, parenting classes, you name it. Uh, And so you and your children are required to attend. And then there's so many rules, you know, they can't have guests, visitors, alcohol, um, no smoking, right? And then they do like barracks checks. Basically, they come into your place and see how how you're maintaining it. Uh, and so it's a really it's a really rough lifestyle, but they're putting themselves through it to better their situation and the situation of their children. Uh, so I have so much respect for them because they know that they need help, and something has happened in their life where they're not able to do it on their own. And so I think that really takes a lot of strength. And these are the families who come to dwell with dignity, right? They're all referred to us. So I'm just in awe every time I meet a new family because I know what they've been through, right? So when they finally get a place that they have that's their own, that they get to call the shots, like it's a whole new world for them. And in that kind of uh world of like when you're kind of mentioning on the um kind of the combination of the nine to 12 months housing with career guidance and some of these other amenities i remember kind of saying like on a article um you know related to your organization where it's talking about all types of policies um some of them were called like housing first policies and then some that uh would prefer some type of requirements or guidelines before the housing is given. I was kind of wondering on, you know, your thoughts on that, if you uh, believe in towards one of the policies. Um, I think it was, uh, you know, they're kind of talking about some of the critics, but then I think it was asking me to pay $5 for the full article. <laughs> so I didn't do that. Right, exactly. We, we want you guys to support what we're doing. However, we would also like your support in return. We're like, okay, uh, cool. Uh, but no, I think that so and, and dwell with dignity's perspective, I think that you need to have multiple contingencies of care at once. Um, I do think housing is incredibly important. And so that's something that obviously is core to our mission. But I don't think that you can have housing without the wraparound services. And so we actually last year hired a director of community engagement. And her entire job is to connect with our families throughout the year. So it used to be that we would hand people the keys and say, here are the keys to your new place. Congratulations. Good luck. And we realized like that's not enough, especially in in this world of this economy. And so now we talk to them all the time. We send them surveys and updates and we say, hey, how are you? Like, what else do you need right now? We know that someone's doing a back to school drive. Do you need supplies for your kids? Or, hey, we know the holidays are coming up. Here's a place that's doing free holiday meals. And so I think that by connecting, right, and collaborating, that's how you're going to make a difference. And it's on us. And so I always use this analogy, like you can throw someone a life raft if they're drowning, or you could teach them to swim, or you could put them in the boat. And we put them in the boat with us, right? We're like, get in, we're doing this together. And those are just three very different approaches. Uh, 
and everyone has their belief in why each one's important, but we want people to come along with us. And what we see is that 100% of our families stay living independently. Like even during the pandemic, they all had jobs. They all had their own place. And it's because we set them up with the foundation and with the resources at the exact same time, because you can't just have the foundation during the pandemic and then suddenly everything else falls out then what do you have left? You still need those resources to be able to make it, you know, whether we're talking about groceries or rent assistance, there's got to be something that we can provide them to keep them staying above. With that person that you guys hired that, you know, their primary responsibility is checking up on these families and having that regular communication to, you know, see if they're uh, having issues with any transitions. I was kind of wondering, is there ever, I guess, a common um, complaint or like a number one um, thing that's the hardest for a lot of these families to transition to, whether it's I guess the career side or grocery shopping or like any other task when, you know, they just came um, from a homeless situation? Yeah. Um, so we try to set them up as much as we can for success. So when we move them into their homes, we also do two weeks of groceries. We do a hot meal for the first night. We fill their pantry, their fridge, their freezer. We give them all their accessories and toiletries down to like toilet brushes and Lysol. Uh, So we really tried to think of absolutely everything uh, because we know that it's difficult, right? Being a single mom, especially if you have multiple kids and multiple jobs, it's just going to be so hard for you to be able to, to, access things like toilet paper on the fly, right? Like, you know, how do you do that? Do you put all three kids in the car and then drive, you know, eight miles to the closest grocery store? I mean, it's so difficult for the families that we serve. And it's so interesting to us because, you know, like the other day I needed something and my son's like, oh, well, you can just door dash it. And I'm like, you're five. How do you know what that means? But they don't have that, right? They don't have food delivery in their area, or they don't have grocery stores nearby. Uh, So we really try to anticipate all of those things before there are ever issues for them. Uh, Because really the biggest thing, honestly, that I've seen has been transportation. Uh, And obviously the rising cost of fuel have been such an issue, but that's the big thing. If you can't get to your job, if you can't get your kid to daycare, then everything else doesn't work. When you kind of like uh, mention on some of the parts of this organization, and I remember kind of saying on the website, uh, you know, the qualities of some of the uh, apartments and like the interior designing that you guys add to some of these places to be, you know, the specific requirements or, you know, catered to the person moving in. I was kind of wondering, like, uh, like when this organization was originally created, was it did you guys get like immediate um, attention from the DFW community or was it kind of like a slow rise as far as like building this out? You know, it's definitely been a journey. So we're 13 now. uh, So we're officially a teenager. I took over four years ago and just in four years, the attention that we have gotten has been insane. Uh, Today, we were the official partner for Amazon for Prime Day. And so we did a project with them. They donated $50,000 to us. Uh, They purchased every single item in the community does it mental health space over in East Dallas. 
it's just like those opportunities that are coming to us now are things that we could have never dreamt of before. And it's taken a long time, right? Because you have to have all the pieces in place. Uh, and so now we have the metrics and the outcomes and the success stories. And, you know, we've really refined our mission uh, and our work. And so I think it's definitely taken some time to to finesse and you know obviously right out of the, the out of the gate there was some great attention and then you know things wane and there's a lot of nonprofits in Dallas as you know um, and so it, it's really hard to stand out sometimes but I think that you know the the quality of our work and just our, our focus has been enough to kind of catapult us to a, a different a different standard and different level. On kind of like uh, some of the attention that you guys get and, um, you know, some of these partnerships, you kind of mentioned, uh, you know, some of the partnerships like with Amazon. I remember seeing uh, kind of an article related to the, uh, I think it was the Social Innovation Accelerator. And I was kind of wondering on the process behind that, um, you know, if it's very similar to, I guess, like Shark Tank or like what's the, I guess, panel like? It is very Shark Tank. Uh, so what's actually great about the United Way, and they're a huge partner of ours, and we love them, and uh, I was in the Social Innovation Accelerator class, is that they put you through months of training and boot camp before that. Uh, and so I'm actually uh, one of the mentors for their incubator now, and I go back and work with the new classes. And so it's been a great opportunity. But really, they make sure to prepare you thoroughly uh, for this opportunity because they know that this is a huge press chance for you to get your your mission and your work out there. And, you know, some of my greatest successes now have been because of the opportunity to participate. And obviously, I love to talk. Uh, so getting on stage and pitching was never an issue for me. But, you know, they help you with that. They give you amazing mentors and coaches and they train you. Uh, it's one of my favorite things that I've done in my career. And uh, a lot of the ventures that I developed with the United Way are coming to fruition now. So I absolutely love the opportunity to kind of like look back at that and say like, oh my gosh, like this was so pivotal for us. Uh, and so I'm really excited because I love going to the pitch every year and seeing how innovative North Texas is and how everyone is really like bringing new ideas to, to the plate. Mm. And like when you get up and, you know, you're standing in front of the audience and you're pitching this idea and pitching the organization on some of the projects you guys have lined up. So were there like any common questions that the panel or that people were asking about the organization or maybe on like the organization on what they're trying to do or some of the challenges they expect along the way? Absolutely. I think something that everyone's really asked about a lot lately is our growth plans and our scalability, uh, because we are an advanced nonprofit, right? Because we, we have good funders, we have a great earned revenue model, we have a strategic board. So we have a lot of those pieces in place already. So now everyone's kind of asking us, like, what's the next step? Uh, so that's been definitely on my mind is, you know, where do we go with this? Uh, so every time I meet with a funder or a donor, that's really the, the question that I get. <laughs> and that that was kind of like uh, when you mentioned the donors um, and kind of the situation on being able to fund something like this. I, and kind of remembered like you talking about early on on like the idea of uh you know, in earlier projects you've done where you're speaking to someone who's spending $5 million on a painting, yeah. but, you know, someone doesn't have $5. It, 
when it comes to like the funding model, has it like been easier to, uh, you know, try to find higher net funders or, you know, larger fundings, or have you guys tried to go after, you know, smaller fundings on like a larger scale? Yeah. So we have a really interesting revenue model. So we have a pop-up store that we run once a year called Thrift Studio. It actually opens August 25th in the design district. And so what we do is we sell donated furniture to the general public. So this is furniture that comes from showrooms, from retailers. um, And, you know, sometimes it is a $10,000 sofa, right? And so we're able to sell that for $6,000. And that's an entire home that we're able to to fill with one sale. Uh, And we make about $600,000 a year just from this one month pop-up store. Uh, So that's really been just kind of a, a revelation in the nonprofit industry, right? That you can have this earned revenue model um, and have this exchange of goods and services because we don't have to rely on, you know, like direct mail or these like end of year campaigns where everyone is, you know, asking for money at the same time, we're able to differentiate ourselves in a way that, you know, everyone knows that you can come to thrift studio, get amazing items at amazing prices, but you're also giving back directly to the community. Hmm. And building that out is like the, um, is like the DFW homeless population. Is it like close to national average? Is it more or less? Like, what is it like compared to, I guess, other Texas cities and just beyond? So in Dallas, the child poverty rate is the third highest in the nation. So it is absolutely incredibly high right now. And it's something that, again, I don't think is really addressed, right? It's something that isn't, uh, given a lot of national attention, and it should be. And I think that that's because we have so many families who are are living on on wages that just aren't sustainable anymore, right? Um, And so we always have this phrase that we hear called the working poor. Um, And so it's, you know, people who are working three or four jobs just to make ends meet. Um, You know, they're making $15,000, $20,000 a year, but you can't raise a family on that. And so it's just been really interesting because, again, I think a lot of people think of homelessness and they think of tent city and people living on the side of the road begging for money. And like that, yes, that is a form of homelessness. But like, what about those who are going from couch to couch or having to stay in hotel rooms or, you know, like extended stay motels uh, or living with their family? Like that's a whole different group. and that's a group that I think that we really need to be addressing as well with dignity. That's really our focus is is the working poor. That's really bizarre on like, um, you know, I would have assumed like with Dallas, I, I guess on like the um, like the rent being cheaper than I, I guess like a lot of comparatively to a lot of cities. But I, I guess is our is our is our average wages like that much lower than other other cities as well? Yeah, rent is going up also so much now. I mean, I just remember when I used to be able to get an apartment for eight hundred a month, and then you know, for for two of us living in an apartment in Dallas, it was twenty four hundred a month. Uh, right? That's not sustainable for our families. And then what happens is that we keep developing our city center, right? And so more and more people are starting to move here. For the highest migration in the United States is into Texas and Dallas. And so then what happens is that we're now forcing people out into the suburbs and now we're making transportation issues harder again. And so, you know, it's really just this incredible system, right? Where obviously like that the city of Dallas wants to to do the best that we can, but 
We have to make sure that we have affordable housing for our families or else suddenly the people who are working jobs that are you know, making the lower wages. So maybe their janitorial staff or the people who are working at fast food restaurants, like they're having to drive an hour to get to their minimum wage jobs. And that's insane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, um. I mean, in kind of that situation, especially kind of when you're mentioned that it's not always uh, living on Tent City, that it's just kind of people barely making by and kind of on like being able to, you kind of mentioned like with scaling this out in the organization uh, to kind of wrap everything up. I honestly just wanted to ask, is there any upcoming projects, um, you know, with Dwell with Dignity that, you know, you're excited about or you, that you wanted to mention? Yeah. So obviously today was super exciting that we were able to go into community does it and work with Amazon. But I think what's so exciting for us is now that we're not just doing these family home projects, but we're able to do community projects. Uh, And so we're going into Paul Quinn College and Oliver Wendell Holmes Middle School. Uh, We're actually doing a project over at the Dallas Zoo. And so there's so many opportunities for us to get our name out in the community and to make impact in such a huge way. And so we're so excited to, to and make new partners were booked through 2024 right now, which I think is just kind of like mind blowing. Um, and then also one of the family projects that we're most excited for is that we are doing our first refugee family from the Ukraine. Uh, and so that was something that we were really open to and we're hoping that there was a way that we could get involved, uh, you know, working with refugees is something that's always been close to my heart personally. Uh, and I'm really thrilled that we're able to to give back in such a meaningful way to this family who's gone through so much. Mm. No, that's uh, yeah, I didn't know about the kind of that re- Ukrainian um, projects that you guys have lined up. But no, sounds. I mean, that's definitely something. I mean, especially needed right now. It's uh, you know, really crazy time. But you know, it seems like uh, with Dwell and Dignity that you guys have a lot of uh, lined up projects that are really going to just help out with the local community and just, uh, you know, it seems like you guys are even scaling outside of that. So honestly, just wanted to um, really just kind of mention again, Ashley, and just thank you for um, not just being able to kind of talk about the organization and kind of the topics related to um, homelessness, but really just kind of also about your personal story and everything that's led to your current role right now. It seems like uh, you know you guys have some really cool upcoming projects and that you personally have uh, a lot to look forward to with uh, this mission. It's just been amazing. And I'm just so grateful for all the opportunities. And I hope that we can talk in a couple of years and say, hey, this is what Well with Dignity has done and how much we've grown. So it's just going to be an amazing journey. For sure. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. And I am so honored to be part of this. We really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Platinum Mask podcast. Stay connected with us directly through the PlatinumMask.com. You can also join the discussion on Instagram at GrayMask12. If you would like to speak with us, please send us an email through maskgrayson at gmail.com. And as always, thank you for pushing your mindset towards a better reality. This concludes the most thought-provoking portion of your day. Don't forget to like and subscribe to stay fully up to date. Until next time, raise a glass to success, no matter how you define it.